Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is engineer, musician, and music technologist Paul Edwards. First of all, songwriters are getting a raise on streams. Well, that's really good news, and especially because songwriters really don't get paid all that much right now. So if you think getting paid for a stream is really, really light in the royalty payment, a songwriter gets about one-tenth of what an artist gets on a stream. That's going to change pretty soon thanks to the fact that the Copyright Royalty Board authorized a 44% increase over the next five years for songwriters. Now, this can be appealed, but so far, Apple Music has said it's not going to do it, but we don't know what's going to happen with the other streaming services. Now, if you're a songwriter, you can thank the National Music Publishers Association and the Nashville Songwriters Association, who forced the issue on this a few months back. And in fact, it's going to be a good thing because songwriters don't get paid much for streaming. But that being said, the battle isn't over yet because everybody kind of has to sign off on it first. Actually, they're not signing off on it. What they're doing is agreeing not to appeal. So it's really good news for songwriters. You're getting a streaming raise. You deserve it. You're not making much money now. But again... This is 44%, but it's over the course of five years. Still better than nothing, even though it's in small increments. If you have any questions or comments, send them to questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now let's talk about sample rates. Sample rates used to be a bigger deal than it is today, but in some ways it still is and still raises some questions. For the most part, it's a confusion, especially to many beginners, to choose a sample rate. But the way I see it, there's never a good reason to use 44.1. The reason why is, for the most part, CDs are no longer important, and really 44.1 doesn't sound as good as the other sample rates. Way, way back in the early days, when storage cost a lot, that was more of an issue because all the other sample rates are higher and therefore you'll need more storage. But today, that's not the case at all. 44.1 gives you no advantages whatsoever. 24-bit does, however. That means a lot. So at the very least, you should record a 24-bit. But that being said, 48K is probably the lowest I think you should go. One of the reasons why you should always think about 48K is that is the standard for video production. So all audio for video is done at 48K, although there's a movement to 96K for that. Now, 96K in recent years has become the standard in most audio production, and there's a number of good reasons. Yeah, it does sound better. Does it sound a whole lot better? Well, I don't think so, but it does sound better. However, from an archival standpoint, it's important that you really consider doing 96K. The reason why is Apple considers anything that's 9624 high resolution and therefore really wants it on their Apple Music platform. Apple Music has been collecting 96K files for at least five years, maybe it's six years now. 
And for the most part, it's a good idea to record as high a sample rate as possible because at some point in time, we'll look back and we'll say, wow, anything less than 96K was the Stone Age. So now it's really easy. It doesn't cost you anything in terms of plugins or in terms of track count or in terms of storage. So why not do it? It will just sound better. Now we get to 192. A few years ago, I actually did the tests where we recorded the exact same thing on three different Pro Tools rigs at 48, 96, and 192K. And it was pretty eye-opening. The difference between 48 and 96K wasn't all that great. The difference between 96 and 192 was amazing, though. And what ended up happening was we listened to it, and it was a live or Memorex moment, for those of you who can remember back that far. It sounded really fantastic. You can hear a tinkle that you couldn't hear otherwise in anything with high frequencies. It seemed to have more depth. It just sounded more real. Now, you might think, well, if that's the case, why isn't everybody recording at 192? But there are some limitations. Again, once upon a time, it would take up four times the storage space, and now that's not that big a deal because storage is really cheap, and this basically becomes more like a video project where you're storing about the same amount. So, again, not a big deal. However, not all plugins work at 192, so your favorite plugins may only go to 96K, and that's it. So that's kind of a limitation. The other thing on certain digital audio workstations, and not all will work at 192, by the way, but most of them will experience a voice count drop. What is a voice? Most people think of it as a track. One track equals one voice. Well, yeah, that's sort of true, but not exactly. Voices are different from tracks. A voice is a unique audio stream that can be routed to a track. You can have more tracks than voices, but the problem is not all of the tracks will sound. So if you have 20 voices available and you have 24 tracks, well, only the first 20 tracks are going to be heard. So that can be a problem. So what ends up happening is your voice count usually halves at 192. And that may not be a problem, but for some it might be. So for instance, sometimes a track will use two voices. And this usually occurs when you're doing a punch, for instance. So there's one voice for the original audio stream, and there's a second voice for the new one that's being punched in. So you can see where a limitation might happen right there, where you need extra voices that they might not be available to you. That aside, recording at 192K is really an outstanding experience. The sound is better. The depth is better. What I really liked is you can hear differences between simulations. So if you go to an amp simulator, for instance, Things that sounded subtle to you before now jump out as a lot bigger deal. Reverbs tend to sound better, especially the tails. Everything sounds smoother. So if you haven't tried recording at 192K, I urge you to try it because I think you'll end up liking it. And I think before long, that will become the new standard for recording music. My guest today is Paul Edwards, who's a Montreal-based engineer who's worked on projects by Smashing Pumpkins, Flaming Lips, Ben Harper, Arctic Monkeys, Seal, and many, many more. For three years, Paul is also the lead engineer for the online mastering service Lander. In the interview, we talked about getting into mastering, some insights on Lander, artificial intelligence and audio, and much, much more. Paul and I spoke via Skype from a studio in Montreal. 
you've had experience with Lander and with Korg, but let's go back because I want to find out more about your background and how you got into the business. Sure. I guess it goes, you can go way back, way back. Uh, my mom was a big fan of music, but my parents aren't musicians. But uh, so I always had a lot of music around the house and a lot of the, what you'd call golden oldies, stuff like that. So, you know, a lot of harmonies have been instilled into me uh, from an early age. But um, I guess I, I found music basically when I was a teenager. A couple of friends of mine, one played guitar, one played drums. And they said, they heard me sing one day and they said, why don't you buy a bass and we'll start a band. So that was back in the grunge days. And um, I did that for a while. I uh, was in a number of bands. And then as I kind of moved out of my parents' place and got an apartment, I moved into more finger-picking style guitar. And then over the years, I've been in tons of bands, heavy bands, from heavy rock bands to country rock bands, uh, oddly enough. And, um, you know, sort of more r traditional rock bands. But in my career, I work with a, a whole bunch of different genres of music. I, I really got the recording bug, I guess. I moved to Sweden in my early 20s, and then I recorded my first album there with a friend of mine. And when I came back, I worked as hard as I could that summer to buy my first digital recorder, which was um, a Korg D1600, if you remember those. I do. So that's when I started to actually record bands, and that was a few years before I actually studied recording at uh, Concordia University up here in Montreal. No, wait, you, you moved to Sweden. What was that like musically? Sweden is huge on music. I actually took a Swedish music history course when I was there and a whole bunch of other things. I was on a, a couple of college radio uh, shows. Uh, one was international radio and another one was in Sweden, so I didn't speak that much <laughs> when I was on that show. But uh, they, they invest a lot. I had friends while I was there where the government would pay for their rehearsal spaces. And uh, it's, uh, they, they love music and they're huge music fans and they're a huge exporter of music in the world. So that was a, a ton of fun. So a lot of, a lot of interesting music coming out of there at that time and since. Well, I'm just curious, what's the prevailing type of music? We know they're exports, but I'm just curious, what's it like on the ground? Uh, when I was there, it was 99, 2000. So there was a lot of what you would imagine, a lot of disco, dance music, but a lot of indie rock as well. Hmm. So that was the prevailing music that I would be exposed to at that time in terms of the friends and the clubs that I would hang out at, uh, the clubs that I would hang out at. But uh, since then, I keep in touch a little bit with the radio station that I worked at. I'll see their playlists. They usually have three playlists. And I would see that every once in a while. And it was it's it's what you would imagine. There is a playlist that has a lot of pop and dance. There's a playlist that has a lot of rock still. And then there's a playlist that will have uh, pri primarily hip-hop or urban music. Is it imported or is, is this native hip-hop? They kind of have something similar to CanCon, which is the Canadian content laws where you have to play a bunch of uh, Swedish music. Uh, don't quote me specifically on that, but at least at the radio station I worked at, which is the largest studio uh, called Lund Radio, the largest studio radio station there. I um, they they would make they would make sure that there was a lot of Swedish music on on the playlists. But of course, you're influenced by the major labels, like everybody is. So you'd get they would get free CDs from the from the music labels uh, and an agreement to play you know choice cuts that would come out in singles that were being released. Yeah. Okay. So then you come back to Canada. Is that when you went to Concordia? Uh, yeah, I was still I was still finishing university at that time. I would I took a degree which was science and human affairs, which is a degree that no one really understands and it's probably not worth discussing. But 
a lot of research work was involved with that, which later uh, ended up helping me at, uh, at my time at my last uh, music tech job. But, um, but when I finished that degree, I'd already caught the bug for recording. So I was doing it on the side. I was recording the bands that I was in. I was recording friends bands and started to, you know, call myself a producer, even though probably at the time I didn't know what I was doing. As uh, as everyone does, they're they're a recording engineer with a with an opinion, I guess at that point. <laughs> but you you want to call yourself a producer because it makes you sound cool and uh, and important. So I did um, I did a bunch of that on my own, and then after I finished my undergrad, I kind of snuck my w- way into the electroacoustics program at Concordia University. And from there, I used I did that for a year, and then from there, I used that to sneak into their advanced sound engineering program. So I kind of begged and pleaded with the the head of the department saying, I know that I'm not uh, in the actual music department, but this is the only thing I really want to do. And if you could please let me join up with the, the rest of the crew. So um, I think I was, uh, I was kind of blessed in terms of uh, someone took a chance on me at that point. And, uh, and then that's where I started having access to a big concert hall, which is the Oscar Peterson concert hall. And he had a bunch of fun gear in there. He had donated his radar system and there was a Pro Tools HD system and a bunch of other things. So we had, we do a lot of overnight sessions, you know, starting at 10 o'clock and get out of there at 6 a.m. And this is back in the days where you'd have to burn everything down to a DVD. And then we eventually, a couple of years later, because I was there for four years uh, studying recording. And uh, towards the end of that, I got my first LaCie drive. I think it was 160 gigs and it cost just under 500 bucks or something like that. But uh, it, it definitely made bouncing down the sessions at the end of the day to take them to the home studio a lot easier. So I, I think back on those days and uh, it was a lot of fun, but there was a lot of work, a lot of late nights. And the time you spent backing things up now that we have hard drives all over the place, um, you know, kids don't know how good they have it these days. Yeah, no kidding. You know, it's funny. I just actually kind of went through that where... I like to back my session up completely and take it home with me because, and if I'm somewhere tracking, for instance, because I want to be able to work on it at home. I want to be able to do edits and stuff like that. And I recently had a project that just took forever to back up. It was like an hour and we couldn't figure out what was going on. And then when I got it home, I realized there was a bunch of tracks that weren't included anyway. There was, there was a problem in the backup. And the whole thing, you know, it was kind of like, well, this is defeating the purpose of going quickly because it's not. So it just goes to show you that it doesn't always work the way it's supposed to. No, it, it certainly doesn't. And uh, I guess what I've, I've only lost one hard drive over the years, but it happened fairly early on in my career. And ever since then, I've been very careful to, to back up all my stuff. So I have about 15 hard drives kicking around and recently set myself up with a RAID system. I can't believe it took that long, but I've got uh, a double eight terabyte RAID system. So everything I work on, I work a lot on my computer and then I'll transfer it after every session to an SSD drive. So a really quick um, Samsung SSD drive. So I have it in two places and then periodically throughout the week, I'll transfer it over to my RAID system. Funny you should mention about drives going down. The only time I've had problems with drives is on a RAID system. (laughs) Oh, really? Yeah. Who would have thought? (laughs) I'm still a little paranoid. I just got it set up last month, but uh, I still don't fully trust it. So I'm going to keep it like, as they say, the the one, two, three or the three, two, one rule. Um, I don't, I don't fully trust it. If it's on the racism, it still has to be somewhere else. So uh, I, I have stopped backing up things to DVD, which I don't think that that's necessarily the smartest plan, 
because I'll still have people contact me, me say, remember that, uh, that last, uh, CD launch or the, the final show that we did for our band that you recorded live. Well, um, you know, do you have that? And I'll go look through all my DVDs and I'll find it and I'll send it to them. So this is stuff for like 10, 15 years going back and a year, obviously you come off as a big savior and it's nice to be able to send all that data back to the bands that maybe they've come back for a reunion show or something similar and they want to put some things out. Because back in the day, obviously, there wasn't the the internet wasn't what it is today. So there wasn't all these like platforms and even YouTube didn't exist at the time. So sometimes these bands are getting together and putting together some old footage and they want to get access to their old recordings. When did you get into mastering? Mastering, I think perhaps like a lot of people, I got into mastering just because it was out of necessity. I started doing, I had a mobile recording rig. I didn't have a studio at the time, so I had a, a small uh, studio maybe in my apartment and then my jam space, and I would record uh, in a whole bunch of different places, and I would go see the artists. So a lot of the way that I got a lot of my experience was actually doing a lot of live recordings. So a lot of live shows, I've done hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them over the years. So when you're delivering that, you're recording, you're mixing, and you're you enable you have to in the end you have to master it. So that's, I started to learn about mastering and then, you know, butchering things with an L2 and, uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. you know, for, for, for a long time thinking that the L2 is the be all and end all, I still do use some waves plugins from time to time, but they tend to be more effects based things. And my compressors and my EQs, uh, tend to be, um, and other third party companies mm. that I tend to trust. Well, the interesting thing is. So you had a pretty, I don't want to say long because it's not like in terms of, of decades or anything, but you had a pretty good amount of experience in mastering and digital mastering anyway, before you got to Lander then. Is that one of the reasons that you got the gig there? Yeah, I think so. I, I was up, up, at the time I was up against some other pretty big engineers. So I wasn't even necessarily contemplating uh, applying at the time. And I just said, Hey, what the heck? The same thing when I was a product specialist for Korg. That was a job at the time. I had just bought my house. Um, so I'd set, I'd set my, I'd moved my studio from this, uh, from this studio downtown I, to my house. And so I'd spent about six months remodeling it, cut, you know, breaking down the walls, doing double walls, resilient channels, floating, floating walls, floating ceiling, all that good stuff, uh, putting in a vocal booth, a live room, and then a control room on another floor. So I was, I was in the middle of all that. And then this offer came to work at Korg. And, uh, you know, I kind of said, Hey, a, a steady paycheck would be nice while I'm building the studio. Uh, but I figured, Hey, I'm not a keyboard player. Uh, what's, I have a lot of experience in, t in tech. I did, I worked in it. I built databases for a while. So I had this, I have a thirst for knowledge. And back in the day when you had to read all the magazines and books, you could get your hands on, obviously, you know, as an author, how important that was to young, young engineers to have access to all that information, but we couldn't just pull up YouTube. So I had this thirst for knowledge. And, uh, so I took the job at Korg and I was successful at that. So after I quit Korg, I think I worked on my own for about four years in the studio, working with a lot of indie bands and doing uh, recording, mixing, mastering, as well as live stuff, but studio and live stuff. So when the opportunity came up to interview for Lander, you know, you, you kind of never think you have the imposter syndrome that you, you never, you don't think that you're quite qualified to, to, to run and, uh, <laughs> be the, uh, the lead audio engineer and manage the audio team for this cutting edge technology. But, um, 
I went through a series of four interviews and, and uh, then four years later, here we are. So it was very challenging. I worked with a lot of talented people. So I think basically it started off as mixed genius. And that's when I was hired. Uh, we were going to go off and do this um, automated mixing platform. But along the way of developing that technology, they decided that it would be a good idea to do mastering as well. And then eventually mastering seemed like the low-hanging fruit. And uh, when I was hired on, we figured that would take about six months to develop. We launched after a few months and it took uh, six months. We said, oh, in six months, we're going to have this, no problem. Then we realized that, that we had a lot more work to do. And they're still continuing to do the work uh, maybe five years later after I had joined on. So, um, so it's... So I think, yes, to answer your question, as a long-winded answer, to answer your question, uh, my mastering skills were one of the, uh, one of the things that uh, helped me uh, secure that position. Did you have any experience in artificial intelligence prior to going to Lander? No, I did not, um, other than just um, an interest in it, but I didn't have any experience or any education in it. My degree in science and human affairs, I did a lot of research work. So I was ex exposed to that, but nothing specifically related to artificial intelligence. But you have to remember as well is that all this was new. You know, when we first launched Lander back in, I guess it was the spring of 2014, this was pretty disruptive technology. So, um, and, and now it just seems like it's commonplace. But uh, if, if you roll the clocks back five years, this was just, just breaking out. We, we did have a lot of uh, research behind us when we, when we took it on, but we were really making things up from scratch at this point. So we're developing testing methodologies, and basically I was brought in to, to run and hire the team that would translate what's happening up in the mastering engineer's brain and the decisions that we would make to, uh, to turn that into um, an, an automated system that could at least simulate the processes that are typically involved in, in the mastering process. And that's all AI then. It's AI driven, right? Uh, yeah. Okay. And I don't want to spend too much time on Lander because you're not there anymore and you've moved on, but I'm just kind of curious about the process and I don't know how much you can talk about it either. So, I mean, there, there's a couple of barriers here, but one of the things that I know some mixers don't like is the fact that they're not comfortable with an online process, no matter how intelligent it is doing something that they're used to paying high dollars for from, from a real guy. And I guess that Lander and all the other similar services aren't really going after that client. Is that the case? Yeah, that's, uh, that's the story for sure. I mean, that's, you know, even, um, you know, you listen to anyone and the marketing speak that comes out of the company. Basically what we started to do was to offer that service, which was pretty, prohibitive to most most uh, artists out there whereas to be able to use a mastering engineer who might be charging you know uh, up to hundreds of hundreds of dollars per tracks where you have people that aren't charging as much and they they call themselves mastering engineers and they're not you know yeah. people that they, they either they're either charlatans and they're trying to take advantage of people or they're just people that may think they know what they're doing but they don't but um, so yeah it's geared towards the amateur musician I mean, there, there's the argument that people, I, I totally get people not wanting to put their, their tracks in the hands of a robot, let's say. And we're giving robot in quotations, obviously. Um, and it makes a lot of sense. There's always, been, uh, there's always been pushback to the technology. And we totally understand and appreciate that as well. 
And a lot of guys on the team are obviously musicians themselves and have been in bands and have spent weeks, months, years producing music. And um, in, in the end, are you really going to trust a computer to do that work for you? But on the other hand, uh, for a lot of people, um, it's it sounds good enough. And they, they don't have the experience of growing up in an environment, whether they're amateur musicians or they're just new to the game, where you know they just started playing music two years ago. And all they know is Lander and the other uh, online um, you know, cloud bounce and the other guys that are out there. So that's all they know, right? So it's good enough. It's like Instagram, <laughs> you know, that, that, that kind of thing. So I, I'm uh, being in a band and ha- being the guy that knows how to build websites and playing around with Photoshop over the years. Um, I, can, I can do a lot of fun things in Photoshop, but if I'm going to Instagram for something, am I really going to spend time? Instagram's good enough. So for certain things, like maybe my wedding photos or pictures of my, my, my first, uh, the first professional pictures of my son when he was a year old. So we go to a professional for it. But if I'm going to throw something online, um, I'm going to use Instagram and it's good enough for me. And I'm not a professional photographer, so maybe I don't see the difference, which I guess you can, you can sort of um, parallel that to a musician that they don't know. It sounds, it sounds louder. It sounds like it's doing something, so it's good enough. And then... All the marketing behind that leads people to believe that this is the be-all and end-all of mastering when you've never been exposed to a professional mastering engineer and you wouldn't know the difference. So there's nothing wrong with that as far as I'm concerned. Um, I'm a professional mastering engineer. Um, I have been for a long time and I continue to be so as well as a mixing engineer and recording engineer. But um, so it's hard to say that I'm not the client, you know, but I can, I can see how it might appeal to certain people. And I, I don't really see anything wrong with that, but I continue to to master my own work and and encourage people to to use an actual person because there's limitations of what the technology can do compared to someone who has a lifetime of experience listening to music and uh, you know perhaps a decade or two decades worth of uh, actually working in audio. Now, see where I see Lander and the similar services come in is the fact that now. Just about anybody could buy some very powerful mastering tools and virtually the same ones that mastering engineers are using. And that's all well and good, but the fact of the matter is they're so powerful that if you don't know what you're doing, you could pretty much end up making it worse instead of better, and it happens often. So in a way, you're better off taking that money and spending it on an online service and at least it's, it's going to keep you out of trouble. At least it's going to sound good without going over the edge. And that's kind of the way I look at it. Unfortunately, I think there's, you know, the tendency of, oh, I have this brand new mastering tool and I'm going to use it to death or overuse it to death is, is generally the case. Yeah. And there's no shortage. I mean, every company seems to be coming out with their own mastering plugin uh, on a yearly basis. And some have, have more success than others. But um, it seems to be um, it seems to be the hot ticket item these days. You know, do do yourself, do your own mastering. But like you said, you can get yourself into a lot of trouble. And not that I uh, really use multiband compression or rarely even use it. But something like that could do a lot of damage to um, to a young, inexperienced engineer or even an experienced engineer that doesn't have doesn't doesn't have the time working on the plugin. You can really kill your mixes that way by by doing something, let alone not being able to, not having a proper limiter to use. If you're just using an L2, you basically just have a couple, you know, you can't really tweak it that you could in a Pro-L or um, 
the DMG limit list or something like that. That's a, a very more powerful limiter um, that can be uh, that can be very very useful in in the hands of a skilled um, mastering engineer. Yeah, and see, here's the thing that I kind of realized because I've had mastering engineers and really great mastering engineers as friends, as buddies for a long time. And when I watch them work, I'm always amazed at how little they do to make it sound great. And that's the one thing that if you have a tool, you're not going to do, generally speaking, if you don't have that experience. You know, adding a, a half a dB here and a half a dB there or minus a quarter dB, it shouldn't sound different, but it does. You know, in the hands of somebody that's really good, it can just make it sing, make a, a track sing. And yet the average person who's mastering on the same monitors that they mixed on is compounding the problems and of course you know half a db they probably can't hear the difference so it's <laughs> they're not going to help it yeah exactly and yeah that's the it tends to be the incremental steps sometimes a mastering engineer as you know you know some of them say i just use an eq and a compressor and that's all i ever need i tend to have a lot more in my stack i don't necessarily use everything in my stack but um, I think over the years, I've found that it's all the little incremental things. I did a post on Instagram a little while ago sort of saying, you know, plan on just having your, mas your mix engineer master your tracks or slap an L2 on your tracks. Like, good luck. Here's an example. And I had like a screenshot of maybe seven plugins that I had. And they're not doing a lot of heavy lifting, but everything is doing a little thing to it's all incremental improvements. You know, just tiny little moves. Sometimes you need, depending on if you're working on with an indie artist, you might have to do some pretty serious moves in terms of surgical EQ for the most part, I'd say. Just fixing irregularities. And the mixing engineer himself or herself could be very talented. But as you said, maybe that they don't have the proper headphones, they don't have the proper speakers, and more importantly, they don't have the proper room. And um, like we're not all, all, we're not all as fortunate to, you know, maybe lived as long as you or I have where we can, you know, treat our room or we have our own place or, you know, say we're, you know, the young, younger musicians are recording out of a jam space or rehearsal space or their parents' basement or in their apartment or, you know, the list goes on and on. So I definitely know what it's like to have access to limited gear and limited space. But now that I have my own, you know, proper room that's been acoustically designed by someone else and, and I have uh, my barefoot speakers and my Avocet and a lot of other fun toys, that I can actually know what I'm hearing and I shoot my room and it's it's very flat with a couple little irregularities, but I know those irregularities and I know where they are. <laughs> I think I lost track of what we were saying, but... But yes, you agree. <laughs> I agree. I agree with you, Bobby. That That's what uh, that's what is important here. No, for sure. Let's get back to AI for a second. It seems like more and more audio, especially plugins, are including machine learning, artificial intelligence. Where do you see that going? Because you're more connected to this than anybody I know. For, for sure. Um, I think it would be extremely helpful. I'm not sure which way to come at it. And I tend to talk in tangents. So uh, I hope that your listeners will, uh, will be gentle with me. But as, as an experienced engineer, maybe I'll come at it from this way. As an experienced engineer... You know when you sit down, you know what to go for. You know how to, you know which EQ you're going to use, what maybe what type of a compressor, uh, you know, and then going from what type of compressor or what type of EQ specifically the model and the make of the plugin or the hardware that you're going to go to to achieve the sound that you want. 
So we know that, but it took years and years and years of practice. And going back to one of your old mixes is a great example. It's a very humbling experience. And I did that this year. And I only went back to a mix maybe that I had touched in 2011. And uh, yeah, I don't know what I was up to. And I thought it sounded great at the time, but it definitely did not sound great to me (laughs) at this time. So I think I might have come at this from the wrong direction. But the point I'm trying to make is I wouldn't want to give up the control because I have access to, you know, the, the tools I need and I have the experience to know exactly what I want to do and no, you know, no computer is going to be able to make those changes. Are they going to be able to do a decent job? Maybe in some cases, it depends on the material. Maybe they'll do a great job in some cases. Uh, it just might get lucky. And, you know, like we touched on before, maybe it'll sound good enough to a lot of people. But coming at it from the other side is, I would have loved these tools, you know, like tools from, let's say, from Isotope, where you can analyze and you can say, well, I think maybe here are your problem areas and maybe here's a suggestion for an EQ curve that might work out and may, may or may not work out, but here's a starting point. And I think I would really love that because I was thinking about it the other day and there was one of my recording uh, en- uh, teachers, my instructors at, or uh, professors, whatever you want to call it, at university, uh, he had just come back from a year in Nashville, and we were super excited to work with him because we got we kind of tended to get one, you know, one was a classical guy, and this guy was the more rock guy, so we couldn't wait to ask him every question that we had about how do we produce a rock record. So one day he was showing us a mix that he had worked on, and he had pulled up the kick drum and his and his EQ settings, and he said, "Oh, it sounds great." And he said, oh, "Here's the plug-in off, and here's the plug-in on," and we're like, "Wow, it sounds amazing." We couldn't wait to look, and as as soon as everyone like scurried towards the computer to see, you know, what kind of settings he had, he he clicked the plugin off. <laughs> so we couldn't, and I think we were kind of lightly infuriated at the time, and just felt like, well, why can't we see like where you know he was basically scooping the mids and boosting sixty hertz and maybe boosting five k or something like that. But it was night and day for us. And as young engineers where we had no idea, and again, I have to remind your listeners that this was before YouTube and anything where you could just search, how do I EQ a kick drum? So I think what he was trying to, he was trying to do us a service. It's, it seemed like a disservice where it's like, teach me your tricks. Was it's, it's not about the particular scoop that I do in the mids or the low mids and the boost that I do here. It's using your ears and developing your ears. But uh, it would have been nice. It would have been a nice starting point to understand that for him. So as a young as a young engineer these days or inexperienced, maybe a hobbyist that's coming, uh, retiring and getting into it, I definitely see that these tools are, uh, do have a use and are very useful for, for a lot of people. So, um, so I'm glad that they're out there. They serve a purpose, but they, they could cause a lot of damage with people that don't know. They just say, oh, I, I pressed this button and it calculated something for me. And it told me it should sound good, and I guess it does, but they don't. Because as you know, it takes years to develop an ear to, you know, and maybe it doesn't matter as much for a lot of people these days who are using samples or doing a lot of electronic music or let's quote, quote unquote, urban music, where they don't have to record a live band. But yeah, so it could be could be damaging because this, this plug-in or algorithm could say, this sounds great, when in fact it doesn't. But, uh, you know... Recording drums used to be one of the most daunting things I, I could do, especially recording live bands, you know, either in studio or, uh, or a live setup. But uh, once, you know, after years of doing it, it's one of the most fun things to do. Yeah. 
as you know, it's like, I can't wait for this challenge of like, how are we going to tune this drum set and where are we going to put the mics and how are we going to position it? Because when you start, I always have to remind myself, I'm like, we just put mics where we, where we thought they would go without having any idea where they should go. And, and before you develop your ear, you can't know that, oh, it shouldn't, it should, it normally, last time it worked right there, but this time it's going to work when you pull it six feet away, you know, or sorry, six inches away. Yeah. You know, what I've noticed about the intelligent plugins is that most of them were resisted by veteran engineers at first, and now most of them embrace anything that's new like this. And the reason why is because of speed. And if it will get you in the ballpark faster, that's what everybody wants, because everybody just wants to get through this as quickly as possible. You know, we all love mixing, and, and geez, you know, it will take as much time as possible, but, you know, why spend six hours when you can do it in five or four? You know what I mean? Yeah. I hear you. So I see a lot of engineers, and this is post as well as music mixers, that will use some of the intelligent processors and it will just get them in the ballpark. And they'll know, you know, right away, okay, yeah, this is better or this is not. And okay, let me take it from there. But again, there's that experience level that you're talking about that at least you know where to go. Uh, I'm curious though. Do you see AI being used in audio in the future in any way that it isn't being used now? That's an interesting question. Uh, I'm not sure. So I guess I'd have to, we'd have to go over how it's being used now. It's being used to help people with their mixes. It's used to uh, simulate mastering. It's used for, I mean, even AI is being used to compose songs, which that always seems like a bit crazy to me, but I mean, you know, maybe it's fine for composing songs for, you know, little TV commercials and multimedia stuff. And, and that's fine. It's always interesting. It's more of a curiosity to me than I would actually ever think of using something like that in terms of creating a song. Cause it takes the fun out of it. You know, yeah. uh, we all, we all get into it cause we're creative people. So I guess just thinking of it that way, uh, what would potentially be the other ways I don't know. I don't know what we haven't touched on yet. Do you see it being used in processors where it isn't being used yet? Perhaps like automating some mundane tasks, I think. I think there might be a few plugins out there, but sort of like, you know, assembling a CD for you um, from, from everything, like making the whole tedious process of assembling a CD and adding, you know, DDP information and spacing, all that sort of stuff. That, that could be interesting. But in terms of other things, I don't know. There's a lot of stuff out there that they've already touched on, like the fundamentals of EQ and compression. What more is out there than EQ and compression? The tuning, though. Tuning's a, a great thing that I came to late, I guess, in my career. And I'm a singer, and so I always, if I had the chance to produce someone, I would always get them to sing it the way that I want to and yeah. be able to coach them and get them there. So, but, you know, the more I mix other people's material that's recorded outside my own studio and I don't have my hands on the vocalist uh, in session, or I did a lot of live recording as well. Um, so tuning, Melodyne, and, you know, I use the UAD uh, auto-tune and I have the Waves tune as well, but I've been using Melodyne more and more and that's been fun and it's been a lot of fun in terms of, it's not AI, but if Melodyne had some sort of autom automatic harmony generation you know, for people that aren't musical themselves and like, well, I don't know if this is going to be a major third or where, where is it and where can I place it? And Picking the scale like you have to now in order to do it. Yeah. I think that would be very useful. Something like that, would, which would help to add things, which doesn't take away from the musicality and the creative side of things, but it, it would help augment a mix. You know, those, those little things. 
and maybe uh, a more intelligent um, uh, drum editor. Ah, uh, yeah, that's a good one. Without taking all the feel out of there, <laughs> without killing the feel. Is there something about AI that users don't know or aren't aware of? Uh, I guess um, I guess I'm not the the world's expert on on artificial intelligence, but I think the world I think the word AI and machine learning gets kind of bandied about a lot. And it's kind of we we touched on that earlier that it's kind of like the the hot thing that's out there. So I think that I think the risk of of it being the hot thing is everyone's kind of jumping on it, and uh, and maybe claiming to do AI, but they're not actually doing you know proper AI. And you'd have to speak to a uh, you know a hardcore research scientist with with multiple PhDs to figure out you know what is what is AI and what's not AI and what qualifies as machine learning. But it, it's kind of, um, I'm just thinking you know, off the top of my head, and I don't know if this is a, a very bizarre analogy, but, you know, it's when something like a health craze comes in, and it's like sugar-free or, you know, low in cholesterol, and it's something, it's a product that's been around for 100 years, and it's never had sugar in it, but all of a sudden it's sugar-free. Yeah. So I think, I think there's the risk of people jumping on the AI bandwagon and claiming to do artificial intelligence when it's actually not technically speaking artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. Okay, Paul, so you do a lot of different things. And some of them, like restoration, we haven't even touched on yet. What's the hardest thing out of all of them? What's the thing that you kind of look at and go, oh, i got to do this today? Um, yeah, that's it's, it's true. Uh, sort of a jack of all trades, a uh, master of a few, I guess. Um, I think it's that inquisitive mind. I always want to be learning something else, and I always want to be challenging myself. And whenever I'm starting to improve in one area, and I feel like I have something locked down, you know, for example, for mastering, I, I recently got back into mixing, which I've done a lot of mixing over my, my career. And I've been trying a lot of really fun things over the last few months, uh, just working on people's projects. And it ends up taking a lot longer to do a project, but you end up learning a lot. So I think, you know, having to be like a turnkey studio system and engineer over the years, uh, it's just lucky for me that I don't really get bored of anything and I don't really hate doing anything. Because I don't mind listening to a song a million times. People are like, man, you're producing this band. You're, you're mixing this song. Like, don't you get sick of it after the 10th, 20th, sometimes 50, going back in, you know, a long time ago when you're a junior engineer and you're, you know, you're listening to a song a hundred times. And I would never get sick of anything. So I don't know if it's just something about me where I have this, this love for music. And it doesn't matter if it was you know, a rock song or a death metal song or, you know, you name, you name the genre that maybe someone might find that, that drives them insane after a while, but I would never get sick of it. But I think the other thing that the fact that I do a lot of different things, so one day I could be recording or producing, another day I could be mixing, another day I could be mastering, one day I could just be doing restoration, that it kind of keeps, it keeps the, uh, any risk of something seeming tedious and mundane from creeping in. Um, like I've done some voiceover work for popular, you know, television commercials, Maybelline and L'Oreal and things like that. Um, and which is really interesting and being in the marketing world and it's a lot of fun, but I was like, I would not want to do this for 40 hours. Mm. You know, it's really interesting. So stuff like that, I'd rather be creative, you know, in a bit more of a creative space, helping produce or mix, uh, someone's music. And now that I've got back into mixing, uh, man, that's exciting. You know, I was locked into mastering there for so long. Uh, I would still mix and produce along the way, but just in the last uh, few months where I've got back into mixing hardcore, that's been exciting. So to answer your question, something that I don't really like doing, I don't know. I even like 
doing restoration. I really enjoy it because it puts you in a different headspace. Someone's like, how can you, you know, you, you develop this critical ear and you're looking for mouth noises and bad edits and clicks and hums and buzzes and things that should be, shouldn't be there. So I even really enjoy that process, but I don't want to do it on the same day that I'm mastering something. Mm, yeah. What I, what I would typically do is as I would, I would master it, send it off, send V1 out to the client when I'm comfortable with it. And then I wait until the end because I screwed myself over when new mixes come in. You say, oh, you know, we really like that, but we redid the baseline and we fixed this and now I have to go do the restoration. So I always tell my clients, like, you might hear, if you hear any clicks or things in there, uh, don't worry, I wait until you give me the thumbs up on the mix and the master. And then I could, that's one of my last steps is going in there and removing any of those uh, undesirable materials. Well, wouldn't that be a good spot for AI restoration? Uh, potentially. I would think that that would possibly be a very compl complicated thing to do because it's when, you know, when is the, when is the breath noise desirable? When is this something you want? When is the mouth click that natural, you know, like you can go too far with restoration and it really takes, cause you, you kind of take on like a producer's role in terms of like, what did the mix engineer just actually want to leave in and what actually just did, did he miss? Because, he wasn't paying attention. That's not his job. Typically, the mastering engineer would go and fix those problems or an auto-tune glitch or a dropout or something like that. It's our job as a mastering engineer as the final step. You know, they could be blasting stuff, working on the mix till 2 a.m. Who knows if they're partying in the studio uh, and they send off the mix and say it's done. And you're kind of like, you'll, so, sometimes you'll check with them depending on your relationship with the producer or the engineer and say, hey, I just noticed there's something in there and uh, you know, did you want it in there or not? And they're saying, like, oh, great. Thanks. I don't know how I missed that. It's, it's not really their job. They're working on the creative, you know, uh, one of the most creative parts of it is to get that mix out. And then the mastering engineer or the QC engineer who works for the mastering engineer, it's their job to find these little, little problems and then bring that to the clients. Some clients, some clients react, might react differently to that, say, oh, thanks. And some be like, oh, there's no problems. There's no errors in my mix. My mix is perfect. So, but I, I feel in the most part, people are very, you either just don't say anything and you just fix it. And, you know, you, you leave in what you think is there. And I guess maybe if you, I wasn't experienced as a producer and a mixer and an artist as well, I, I might not know what to take out and what to leave in. Yeah. But um, one of the most uh, fascinating things that I found is, the higher you go up when you start working on major label stuff, you figure that there'd be no errors and it actually kind of seems to be the complete opposite. Yeah. Maybe it's shrinking budgets. Maybe it's always been like that, but I felt that I found like a lot of the major stuff that I worked on, there was a, just a ton of clicks and bad edits and auto tune irregularities and bad, you know, makes me crazy. Yeah. But I, I love it. It's, it's kind of like one of these funny little things to do. Like, uh, I have other engineers that just send me their stuff to, to do audio restoration on it. And obviously over the years I've become very quick with using RX. I've been on RX since RX two. And, um, my professor at, um, Berkeley, uh, Jonathan Weiner was the guy who introduced me to that. And when I first started, we spent about a week working with RX and it just blew my mind. Yeah. I was like, I can't believe you can take out things that, you know, and, and just, demonstrating that to clients are like, oh, there's this, there's this whatever crazy thing in my mix and I'm not going to use the mix because it's in there. And then I was like, well, I send it back to them. I was like, it's gone. And they're like, well, you save the song. The song's going on the album. So that's going back to RX2. And uh, I think I'm on RX6 Advanced at this point. Yeah. And uh, the technology is amazing. But I enjoy stuff like that. It's, it's weird. But I guess it puts me in a place where 
I don't feel sad at the end of the day. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Restoration I, all day. I hear you. And I don't, I don't wish. There's some guys that just want to be recording, just want to be in the recording studio. And I know what it feels like that. I know what it feels like after a 14-hour day in the studio to hit your pillow and just feel such a sense of satisfaction. Yeah. Uh, so I know what that, that excitement is, but that's why I try to do it every once in a while. But in terms of my schedule these days and having a, a couple young kids at home, I really enjoy being able to mix people's projects and master projects and do restoration uh, because it's very flexible. I can work for four hours and then I can rest my ears and someone's not paying for that hour while I go work in my garden or change the tires on my car yeah. or pick my kid up from daycare. So it really works. The schedule really works well for me at the, at the moment. Last question, Paul. What's the best piece of business advice that you've ever received from somebody or maybe you learned along the way? Uh, I guess this one is maybe, maybe I've got a few. I don't know. Potentially controversial is don't quit your day job. <laughs> uh, you got to pay the rent, you know, buy gear uh, and work at, work at night and work on the weekends and get your stuff done. That's what I did. You know, I've, I've had 40 hour a week jobs for most of my career. I would take years off here and there and then I, then opportunity would come up like Korg or like Lander and I would, I would take a break. But I would always be doing things at night. I would always be doing things on the weekend. You, you can find time to do stuff and then it allows you to buy more gear and and invest in other things. And um, it can get in the way of your creativity. And there are traps in terms of not being, you know, spending less time jamming, spending less time doing shows, spending less time writing, but it's a reality. So I guess that would be one. Uh, don't quit your day job until you absolutely can, I suppose. Uh, and I would do collaborate as much as possible. Uh, find people that, that you can support and, and vice versa and build a community and learn from each other. Because even, even though there's tons of uh, resources online, there, there's nothing quite like getting together with someone and don't worry about them stealing your ideas or vice versa. Just support each other and you'll learn from each other. Even if it's someone that's, uh, that might not know as much as about you, maybe they know more about video editing and maybe they know about, more about stuff, but just showing someone will actually help you improve your skills. And then uh, the last one, I guess, is uh, it's a little boring, but uh, set, set yourself up with a nice raid system. <laughs> you, you don't want to lose you don't want to lose that information it's it surprises me all the time about how many people just have everything on one glyph drive and then it could all go poof yeah. and it's the last 10 years of the work and so yeah back up your stuff you can find out more about paul at pauledwards.ca that's pauledwards all one word dot ca thanks for listening and being in my inner circle remember if you have any questions or comments you can send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com to listen to other episodes of bobby osinski's inner circle go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab or you can go to bobbyoinnercircle.com or find an itunes stitcher mixcloud google play google podcasts spotify and now radio public at bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com you'll also find a sign up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts this is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. <laughs>